This is an EWTN Newslink. I'm Teresa Tamio from Catholic Connection. Israel's two main political parties deadlocked after national elections with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu facing an uphill battle to keep his job. Veteran Israeli politician Avigdor Lieberman may be the election's true winner, most likely to dictate the makeup of Israel's new government. The White House wants a full investigation into a gruesome discovery in the Illinois home of Dr. George Klumpfer, who performed abortions in Indiana. When he died earlier this month, his family discovered he had kept the remains of more than 2,000 babies. And lawyers are Cardinal George Pell submitting an application for leave to appeal his conviction for child sex abuse to the Australian High Court. His case standing as a chance of being heard, given the controversy triggered by the split decision of the appeals court judgment nearly a month ago. For more news with a Catholic perspective, visit EWTNnews.com. I'm Teresa Tamio, and Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders starts now. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. On the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And we welcome each and every one of you to a Wednesday edition of EWTN's Call to Communion. This is our show uh, geared primarily towards our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith that has always puzzled you, or maybe it has recently puzzled you, we would love to talk to you about that. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 if you're outside the United States and Canada. We'd love to hear from you. Your number is one two zero five two and we will put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two You can always send us an email ctc at ewtn.com or you can text your question to Dr. Anders. Text the question or text the letters, rather, EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. Charles Beery produces the program. Your call screeners, Mr. Ryan Penny, Jeff Burson, taking care of all of our social media chores. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into that chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. Alongside Dr. David Anders, I am merely Jack Williams. How are you? Hello, merely Jack Williams. How are you today? <laughs> I'm terrific. Listen, I've got a question here from Phyllis. She sent us an email. And it's it's an interesting question, and it's not one I've ever heard from this kind of a perspective before, but her, her children are thinking deep thoughts, and she wants a little help here. Okay. So she says, now stay, stay with me till the end, because I got a little lost in the middle, but I think it kind of comes out in the wash a little bit at, at the end. She says, my adult children believe Catholics practice false doctrine because we base our dogma on scripture and tradition. However, they say that if I can show them anywhere in the Bible that some scripture contradicts other scripture, they'll return to the the faith. Please give me examples of scripture contradicting itself. If I can show them this proof... They may finally see why we must base our beliefs on Scripture and tradition. Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question. The premise of the question 
if I understand it, is that the only reason to rely upon sacred tradition is if it can be shown that Scripture contradicts itself. That's where they're coming from. But I do not agree with that premise. You need to establish that premise before I'm going to follow you in your argument. That is not the reason that Catholics uphold sacred tradition. It is not because we believe that Scripture contradicts itself that we uphold sacred tradition. In fact, the history of Catholic exegesis, Catholic study of the Bible, has been overwhelmingly in favor of harmonizing passages of the Bible that appear to be in contradiction or intention and to show that they do not actually contradict one another when rightly understood. So if you believe in the unity of the Bible rather than it being a, a disparate collection of contradictory books, but if you believe in the thesis of the unity of the Bible, that thesis is a Catholic doctrine which we hold by Catholic tradition. So let me restate. Uh, um, some people in the history of Christianity have held that the Bible contradicted itself. Typically, they were heretics. The, the ancient Gnostics, for one, believed, and the Marcionites, the two groups, that believed that the Bible contradicted itself. In particular, they thought there was contradiction between the Old and New Testaments. And so rather than seeking harmony between the Old and New Testaments, they, they postulated that there were two gods, one of the Old Testament, one of the New. And the Gnostics' position was, well, the Jews get the Old Testament God, we get the New Testament God. And the Catholic Church said, no, there is but one God and one divine revelation. St. Irenaeus, in particular, is associated with this doctrine of the unity of the Bible. And it remains a cardinal premise of Catholic theology to this day, the unity of the Bible. So that's not why we hold to sacred tradition. Why do we hold to sacred tradition? Because Christ commanded us to do so. Jesus said to the apostles, Go into all nations, make disciples, teach them everything I have commanded you. Everything that Christ commanded was oral tradition. He never delivered a word in writing. He didn't give us the New Testament or the scriptures. He gave us his oral tradition embodied in his words, in his actions, and the rituals that he instituted, which we call the sacraments. It is to this body of tradition that St. Paul adverts when he says to the Corinthians, the tradition I receive from the Lord, I hand on to you. If we are to be faithful disciples of Christ, we must hold to the faith that he delivered to us by way of sacred tradition. Now, part of sacred tradition part of sacred tradition is that there is a list of books that the church certifies as being inspired. 27 of the New Testament. So one doctrine that we hold in virtue of sacred tradition is that there is a written text called the New Testament. If you throw out Catholic tradition, you had better throw out the Bible because the Bible is founded on Catholic tradition, not the other way around. Hope that helps you, Phyllis. Again, if you'd like to be on the program, the number to call is 833-288-EWTN. That's 
3986. That's an absolutely free telephone call anywhere in North America. If you happen to be outside of the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985, and we will put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, ctc at ewtn.com. That's ctc at EWTN.com, or you can text your question to Dr. Anders. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders. Hey Alexa, how many ways can I get EWTN? You can get EWTN on television, via cable and satellite, on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, and Google Play. You can get EWTN radio in your car, on Sirius XM Channel 130, and on the go, on any mobile device with the EWTN app. And here's the best news, now you can get EWTN's great programming on me. Bishop Robert Barron. For the first thousand years, there were married priests within the church. There still are married priests under certain circumstances, you know, so it's not absolutely necessary. However, I'm a supporter of it, and I wouldn't want us to move in the direction of kind of a, hey, you know, optional, some do it, some don't. I get it. And I, I go back to Paul, and it's Paul's words that are actually in the ordination ritual, you know, about an undivided life, undivided life, a total gift. I have nothing but the greatest respect for married people. In fact, when when I hear the term heroic sanctity, when they talk about saints, I think of parents right away, you know, who give themselves to their kids. But there's something, I think, pure and simple and undivided about the life of celibacy. It's a radical conformity unto the celibate Christ. Why am I celibate? My ultimate answer, because Jesus was, and I'm conformed to him. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. to check out Cresta in the afternoon this afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, Al's guest, Dr. Richard Fitzgibbons, shares healthy habits for your marriage. That's Cresta in the afternoon this afternoon and every afternoon, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. The numbers again, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-EWTN. 3986. A couple of open phone lines for you right now at 833-288-3986. Dr. Andrews, Tim is watching on YouTube, and he wants to know if you'll speak to the differences between penal substitution and ransom substitution atonement. Yeah, sure. So there are a lot of theories in the history of Christianity about how the death of Christ saves us. Most Christians agree that the death of Christ saves us. How it does that is a matter of some dispute outside the Catholic Church. Inside the Catholic Church, we understand how this works, but a lot of theories have been propounded throughout centuries. So uh, the ransom theory that you refer to uh, in uh, Mark's Gospel, Jesus says, The Son of Man has not come to serve but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does that mean when he talks about giving his life as a ransom? Well, uh, there is a lot in the New Testament. Now, I'm 
just kind of bracketing the question of ransom for a moment, pivoting to another topic. There's a lot in the New Testament about Christ's confrontation with the devil. And a few passages that speak specifically to the manner in which the death of Christ defeats, uh, declaws, so to speak, Satan. One of them would be Hebrews chapter 2, which reads as follows. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So, there, sacred scripture, Hebrews chapter 2, says that Jesus, by his death, breaks the power of Satan, who holds us in fear of death. So, some of the church fathers put these ideas together in the following way. Uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, for example, in his great catechism, says, in order to secure that the ransom in our behalf might be easily accepted by Satan, who required it, Deity was hidden under the veil of our nature, so that as with a ravenous as with a ravenous fish, the hook of the deity might be gulped down along with the bait of flesh, and thus life being introduced into the house of death and light shining in darkness, that which is diametrically opposed to light and life might vanish, for it is not in the nature of darkness to remain when light is present. So, according to Gregory of Nyssa, this is his opinion, Christ ransoms us by literally tricking the devil into attacking him in his humanity, veiling his divinity. And then Christ, by his resurrection, sort of rips the hook out of the, de- out of the devil's jaws, so to speak, defangs him, if you will, and, 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 uh, and, makes it, and takes away his power. So that literally a ransom paid to Satan. That was the way some of the church fathers understood that doctrine. There are other ways to construe it, but that's very typical of of some Eastern Christianity in the 4th century. C.S. Lewis, Anglican writer, in his children's book, Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, presents this ransom theory of the atonement. If you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know the the stand-in character for Jesus is the great lion, Aslan, and uh, Edmund... Uh, the unfaithful brother of the four kids that enters Narnia, betrays his family and Aslan, sells himself and his family to the White Witch. She has a claim on his blood. Aslan goes and says, hey, I'll let you kill me instead. She thinks it's a great exchange. She takes Aslan, lets Edmund go free. Then Aslan shocks everybody by coming back to life and destroying the witch. If you've read that book, it's a picture of that ancient theory of ransom uh, understanding of the atonement. Um, the, The... Penal substitution theory is associated with the Protestant theologian John Calvin has a completely different understanding of how the death of Christ saves. Calvin believed that human beings incur God's wrath by their sin and that God, to be just, has to expiate his wrath on a subject. He's got to take it out on somebody. So Jesus volunteers to take the blow on our behalf. So the, the the person being propitiated here is God, not Satan. And the way he's being propitiated is that Christ stands between us and the wrath of the Father and takes the blow that we deserve, but which he expiates on Jesus instead. So in that model of the atonement, God punishes the innocent in order to acquit the guilty. That was associated with John Calvin, Protestant theologian. Uh, Catholic theologians look at this theory of penal substitution and go, uh-uh. Wrong. First of all, it's not biblical. Second of all, it implicates God in injustice, because it's not just to punish innocent people and acquit guilty people. 
So how do we understand the death of Christ? And look, I mean, uh, Gregory of Nyssa was not all wrong. And I already showed you that there's a biblical basis behind the idea of Christ by his, by his death defeating the devil. But let me flesh that out a little bit. First of all, Christ saves us by setting an example for us that we might follow. St. Peter in his epistle tells us that by his death, Christ is an example for us to follow, laying down our lives in sacrifice like he did. Christ saves us by his teaching as he illumines for us the way of righteousness. That's why when he told the apostles in Matthew 28, go out and make disciples and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Obedience to the teaching of Christ is part of how we are saved. Uh, and also that involves following Christ's example. By his death, though, by his incarnation, Christ joined himself to the human race. The, the, the eternal God took on human flesh, became a man, recapitulated the human race in himself. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about this, sums up in himself the whole history of humanity, recreates it in a spiritual manner so that we die with him mystically in baptism and rise again with him to new life. So the death of Christ becomes this mystical identification with the new Adam in which our old man is destroyed and our, and our inward man is renewed day by day after the image of Jesus. And then finally, by the death of Christ, he offers a sacrifice to God, not to expiate God's wrath upon an innocent man, but by an act of self-donation. Christ, going above and beyond what is required in justice, makes this incredible self-gift, this self-donation, that is meritorious and pleasing to God. St. Paul in Philippians 2 says that by his obedience... Unto death, God exalted Christ to the right hand. And Peter tells us in Acts 2, for that reward, for that obedience and righteousness, God pours out on him the gift of the Holy Spirit, which he then gives to the church. He merits for us the grace of the Holy Spirit by his meritorious death. So in our understanding of the death of Christ, Christ and the Father are in perfect union, a union of, of love, of nature, and of will. Right? No division between Father and Son, as Calvin would postulate. And in doing this, he, of course, destroys the power of death and Satan, the hold over us, transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. couple of open phone lines for you. Uh, our leadoff hitter today is Therese in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Radio, a first-time caller. Therese, you're on with Dr. Anders. Oh, hi there. Thanks for taking my call. How can I help you? Hi. Um, I, I'm not uh, a Catholic, um, but I've been listening to uh, the Catholic Radio for a couple years now, um, just to have... Uh, have a, a great uh, respect for the culture and the knowledge and just everything you guys, you know, put out there. I've really enjoyed it a lot. And I was wondering what your opinion is on orthodoxy versus being Catholic, um, what your opinion is on that. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the question. So, uh, obviously, I'm Catholic. So I believe that the Catholic Church was intended by Christ and founded by him to be the sign and instrument for the reconciliation of the world with God. And I think that the fullness of the Christian faith, and, and in particular the fullness of the Church's corporate unity, 
vis- the visible unity of the church, which is desired by Christ, is on display, as it were, within the Catholic Church, together with the Bishop of Rome and all the bishops that are in communion with him. And the Eastern Church, well, excuse me, the Orthodox Churches, while they have valid sacraments, and they have valid bishops, and they have valid apostolic succession, exist in a kind of wounded state with respect to that unity, because they have separated themselves from from the jurisdiction of the Pope of Rome. And, and one consequence of that is that they they don't exist in a state of visible unity. You know, what was it, last year? They attempted to hold a pan-Orthodox council. They couldn't do it. They couldn't get everybody to the table. And that's that's endemic to the nature of modern Orthodoxy because there is... There's no, there's no authority that can actually call all the Orthodox to attention, so to speak. And that's just among, I mean, that's the Byzantine Orthodox, the Chalcedonian Orthodox. But if you're if you're drawn to the Eastern patrimony and you reject Rome, you you have another problem. Which family of Orthodox do I go with? Because you got you got at least three major options. You got your Chalcedonian Orthodox, which are the Byzantines, you know, your Greeks and your Russians and your Eastern Europeans and so forth. You've got your non-Chalcedonian Orthodox, which are your Egyptian Copts and your Ethiopians and your Eritreans and some of your Syrians and some of your Indians. Uh, then you've got your 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 uh, uh, your Nestorian Orthodox, your Assyrian Orthodox, the, the ancient Chaldean churches that broke away after the Council of Ephesus and reject the doctrine of the Theotokos. Uh, all of them lay claim to the mantle of orthodoxy. All of them do. All of them lay claim to the mantle of antiquity in apostolic succession. All of them say that the new, the other guys are interlopers and innovators, right, or schismatics. And and there's really no way to solve that problem. You can't get out of the circle because, you know, let's say you're a Byzantine Orthodox, and you say, well, you have to believe the true church. Well, which one is that? Well, it's the one that affirms the true councils. Well, which ones are those? Well, they're the ones affirmed by the true church. See, it's a circular argument. And, you know, your 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 cops and your Assyrians are just going to say, well, we reject Chalcedon. We reject that council. And the Byzantines say, well, therefore, you're not, you're not really on board. And they go, well, no, no, you're the guy who's not really on board. And you're never going to get out of that problem. You're never going to get out of that problem unless you can get above it with a singular voice instituted by Christ who actually can say... This is the Catholic faith. And that's why he gave us the institution of the papacy in Matthew chapter 16 of sacred scripture, as well as many other passages as well. The the basic orthodox position that rejects the primacy of the Bishop of Rome, that's the novelty. That's the novelty. The universal jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome, that's that's the truly orthodox doctrine found in the doctors and the fathers of the church as well as sacred tradition. I'd like to give you some resources. One of them is a book by Aidan Nichols, Dominican theologian, called Rome and the Eastern Churches. It's a very fair-minded, very ecumenical look at the relationship of the Church of Rome to the Eastern Churches. Uh, There's another one that's a lot more polemical, so it would, I, I don't think that all your Orthodox people would necessarily agree with the reasoning of this book. Be, they'd have a, they'd probably like Nichols better. Um, the Divine Primacy of the Bishop of Rome by James Lacutus, uh, who used to be Greek Orthodox and became Roman Catholic. That's a much more polemical book. It's a kind of feistier sort of book. 
Uh, the Gentler is by Aidan Nichols, Rome and the Eastern Churches. Um, and then finally, I would suggest that examine what it is that attracts you to orthodoxy. Is it the liturgy? Is it the spirituality? Is it the petrology? Right? Is it the history? Uh, all of those things are accessible to a Catholic in the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church. So if that's the itch you want to scratch, so to speak, you can you can have that. You can sort of have your cake and eat it too. You can become Eastern Catholic. Does that help you, Therese? That definitely gives me a lot to think about, um, and I'll definitely need to do some more research before deciding. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Call us Great. back anytime. Yeah, thanks, Therese, so much for that phone call. We appreciate it. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. You know, I'm a firm believer in um, language mattering. And I think that you can use language that some people might think compromised your position. Oftentimes, I don't think it does. But you can use inflammatory language in the name of orthodoxy sometimes that's not going to forward your conversation forward. I bring this up because I like interlopers and innovators better than schismatics. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a a much more inviting uh, yet accurately descriptive way to refer to people who find themselves in that situation. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Luke in Washington, Terry in North Carolina, and hopefully we'll talk to you as well. That toll-free number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. Your number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. You can always send us an email. You can do that at ctc at EWTN.com that's CTC at EWTN.com or you can text us your question text the letters EWTN to 55000 wait for a response text your first name and your question message and data rates may apply EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders Men, do you need something to do on Saturday, September 28th? Well, then head down to Corpus Christi for the Tough Rosary Retreat. That's right. The Tough Rosary Retreat for Men will be on Saturday, September 28th at Our Lady of Corpus Christi. There will be talks on the different mysteries of the rosary, plus mass confession. Register now at toughrosary.com. That's toughrosary.com. Hope to see you at the Tough Rosary Retreat on Saturday, September 28th. Clark Cardis, colon and rectal surgeon and fellow in the American College of Surgeons, is proud to be a sponsor of the Great Catholic Programming on KJMA. He's a member of Catholic Charities Medical Advisory Board and Catholic Physicians Guild of San Antonio and provides care for colon cancer, diverticulitis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and those embarrassing lumps, bumps, aches, and pains. For more information on his offices in the Medical Center, Westover Hills, or Stone Oak, 
please call 210-614-0880. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Minute. G.K. Chesterton says, You are free in our time to say that God does not exist. You are free to say that he exists and is evil. You are free to say that he would like to exist if he could. You may talk of God as a metaphor or a mystification. You may water him down with gallons of long words or boil him to rags of metaphysics. And it is not merely that nobody punishes, but nobody protests. But if you speak of God as a fact as a thing like a tiger, as a reason for changing one's conduct, then the modern world will stop you somehow if it can. We are long past talking about whether an unbeliever should be punished for being irreverent. It is now thought irreverent to be a believer. Want more than a minute? Visit our website, chesterton.org. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Next up is Luke in Kennewick, Washington, listening to EWTN on Two Hearts Catholic Radio. Luke, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Hi, Dr. Anders. Uh, I have a friend who's a Calvinist, and he seems to suggest that Saint Augustine was a supporter of the Catholic faith. Of the Catholic so faith. Say once on your. Or sorry, the Calvinist faith. That's the, he. My friend says Saint Augustine. He he says that like John Calvin and Martin Luther were Augustinian monks, and a lot of their theology is based on Saint Augustine. I've heard other Protestants basically make the argument that Saint Augustine was really a Protestant. Uh, I don't believe that, but I've heard you say on your show how reading Augustine's work when when you were a Calvinist. Um, Reading St. Augustine is one of the things that helps steer you towards Catholicism. Big time. I'm just wondering, like, what did, what did Augustine say that, that made you, uh, go that way rather than, than sticking with the Calvinist Church? And what works by St. Augustine should my Calvinist friend maybe take a look at? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Uh, so you're absolutely right. Augustine made me a Catholic. And I think anybody who, who, gives Augustine even a cursory read is uh, is going to come to that uh, conclusion. Um, so, of course the Protestants claim Augustine. Of course they do. Here's why. Prior to Augustine, nobody in the history of the Christian Church, and look, Augustine was born in 354. So we're talking 300 years of Christianity. That's longer than the United States has been around. We've already forgotten who the founding fathers of the United States were, right? I mean, that's longer than that. Christianity existed, became the dominant religion, and then the state religion of the Roman Empire, and spread throughout the entire world from 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 the Middle East, you know, to Hadrian's Wall, and and, you know, all the way to the Bosphorus. I mean, we're talking the whole world had become Christian. We had 300 years of, of Catholic writing and theology, systematics, liturgy, sacraments, and discipline, and spirituality before Augustine. And in that whole period of time, virtually no one described the dynamics of salvation using the language of justification. Does that mean they didn't know that Paul talked about justification? 
They all do, Paul talked about justification. But they also knew what he meant by it. Read Paul's letters to Roman the to the Romans and the Galatians. What is at issue in those letters is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. The context of Paul's writing on justification is how do you get a Gentiles into a Jewish church and do they have to follow the law of Moses? The Council of Jerusalem settled that definitively. No, Gentiles don't have to follow the law of Moses. Next question. And thus, the main reason for that whole doctrine and those letters was settled. How then did the early church prior to Augustine understand the dynamics of salvation? Theosis. Deification. That's the language of Irenaeus, of Justin Martyr, of Clement of Alexandria, of Athanasius the Great. God became man that we might become gods. Not in the sense of, like, you know, Mormons who get their own little planet, but that our interior life is renewed after the likeness of image of Jesus. Irenaeus would say what we lost in Adam we regain in Christ, namely to be in, in God's likeness and image. It's this interior renovation by grace leading to holiness, the fruit of which is the vision of God. So the whole dynamic of Christian soteriology, of salvation, the sacramental and disciplinary life of the church for three centuries is bring men to holiness so they can see God. This is what motivated the whole organization of the Desert Fathers fleeing into the wilderness to seek that purity of heart without which no man can see God. This is what motivated the martyrs like Ignatius of Antioch, who when he's going to his death in Rome says, now finally I get to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus because I can follow him in a death like unto his. This is what motivates the disciplinary structure of the church that excommunicates those who are in unrepentant grave sin and only reconciles them after lengthy penances and ecclesiastical absolution. That is all in place long before Augustine. Then Augustine takes up the writings of St. Paul. Late in his career, I might add, around in the early 400s, and, and puts a slightly different spin on them. And what Augustine does is he looks at the language of justification as more or less synonymous with salvation as a whole. Justification for, for Augustine simply is the process of becoming just. He doesn't change the theology of the church. He gives it a new vocabulary. Now, instead of talking predominantly about deification, he talks about justification being made just, justificare in Latin. And he says, look, what Paul says about the Mosaic law, that's true of law in general. Mere command, mere laying down of a precept, like thou shalt, doesn't bring men to holiness. In that sense, the law does not save. What saves is a new creation. Believe in Christ and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. I am renewed in my interior man. I am changed. I'm given the grace to love God and love neighbor so that I may merit salvation. That's what Augustine teaches. What's novel about Augustine is the way he states that very traditional doctrine in a new vocabulary, the language of justification. And he says it's not, it's not through you know, the bare imposition of the law or a commandment. It's by faith that we receive this inward transforming grace. Well, that's the Catholic doctrine. That's what's taught at the Council of Trent. 
Now, when Luther, as a young man, reads Augustine's book on the Spirit and the Letter, and he reads this language about it's not by law, but it's by grace. That's how we're justified. And he's, he's long accustomed, because he's an Augustinian, of thinking about salvation in terms of justification, which was the Augustinian novelty. He then reads Augustine and reads St. Paul as if they were critiquing not, not the Mosaic Law, but, but the legal statutes of the late medieval church. And, and then he formulates his very novel doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is something Augustine never, ever, ever, ever said. And then Luther adds something that he knew was not in Augustine. He understood he was departing from Augustine here. He adds the notion of the imputation of Christ's righteousness and Luther's very peculiar doctrine of two kinds of righteousness, the outward righteousness of the law and the inward righteousness by faith alone. He preaches a sermon about that in 1519 called Two Kinds of Righteousness. That's completely novel. The, the core Protestant doctrine is a completely novel invention by Luther. Now, that's not just my opinion. The definitive work on this subject, or, well, definitive, it's at least the comprehensive work, is by Alistair McGrath, a Protestant. It's called Justitia Dei. It's a two-volume work on the history of justification. McGrath's judgment, and he's a Protestant, is that Luther's doctrine is a complete innovation. It is not the faith of Augustine. It's certainly not the faith of Christian antiquity. He made it up. And other histor Protestant historians of dogma have come to the same conclusion. The key difference between Protestants and Catholics on justification is imputation. Are we saved by the imputation of Christ's righteousness, or are we saved because he, in fact, makes us righteous? The Augustinian position, the patristic position, the biblical position, and the Catholic position is that God makes us actually to be righteous in Christ. Luther rejected that, therefore his position was novel and unbiblical. We head next to Cary, North Carolina. Terry is in North Carolina listening to EWTN on the Amazon Echo. Terry, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hey, I was talking to a non-Christian or a non-Catholic, and he was saying that the dogma of the Christ dogma of Mary didn't become official in the Catholic Church till 1950, and I think he was trying to discount Catholicism, but could you give some clarity on, or why did they do that in 1950? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Let, so let me let me just draw a quick analogy. Was there gravity before Newton? Of course. Like, apples fell from trees before Newton formulated his laws of gravitation. He just articulated what everybody already knew to be the case. That's how Catholic dogma works, sort of. There are things that are revealed by God, handed down in Scripture and tradition, believed by Catholics, confessed by Catholics, celebrated by Catholics, on the calendar of Catholics, before they are actually proclaimed by a pope or council to have been revealed by God. But the only reason a pope or council makes the proclamation is because it was already believed by the church. They go, you not think we've been doing all this time? That was correct, by the way, just in case you were wondering. Every dogma of the church is like this. The Trinity was formally proclaimed in 325. Catholics had been believing in the Trinity for 300 years. 
And then it got called into question. So the Council of Nicaea said, yeah, you know that thing we've been doing for 300 years? That was correct. Same thing with the dogma of the Assumption. Catholics had been believing, confessing, and celebrating it. The Pope proclaimed it a dogma in 1950. That doesn't mean we started to believe it in 1950. It just means in 1950 one of us knuckleheads started questioning it. Actually, this is one of those doctrines where I think the principal motive for proclaiming the dogma was the Pope really, really loved Mary. <laughs> I think it was it was born out of a kind of universal Marian fervor and devotion to our Blessed Mother. And it was like, let's give Mary a present. <laughs> well, there you go. Does that help you, Terry? Thanks so much, yes. Oh, you're welcome. And, you know, Terry's listening on the Amazon Alexa, and we certainly encourage you to listen to EWTN Radio on one of our wonderful affiliates around the United States, some 370 strong on the AM and FM dial, but sometimes you'll go in from your car and maybe you don't get that AM station in your house. Uh, never fear, because EWTN is available on those smart speakers like Amazon Echo. Just say, Alexa, play EWTN radio, and she will be obedient to you. Um, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We head next to Spartanburg, South Carolina, where Francisco is listening on St. Paul Catholic Radio. Francisco, what is your question for Dr. Anders? Good afternoon, Dr. Anders. Thank you for taking my my question. It's a it's a very simple and deep question I've been dealing with for a while. Why God require the blood of an innocent to forgive us? Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law required the Israelites to sacrifice irrational animals because it cost them something. Not the animals. It cost the worshiper. And King David, Second Samuel chapter 24, gives the reason. He says, I will not offer the Lord a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Sacrifice is the language of love. Sacrifice without love is hateful, which is why we also find in the Old Testament numerous times God saying, I hate your sacrifices. And I do not require the blood of goats and bulls. I own all the, the goats and bulls. Who do you think you are giving me what I already own? Go away until you are truly repentant and contrite in heart. It is not the blood of the goat or the bull that God loves. He doesn't. It is the contrition, the love, and the, and the donation of the worshiper that he values. That's what he's after. Hebrews uh, chapter 10 uh, the sacred writer says it is impossible that the blood of goats and bulls should take away sins. In Psalm 51, David says, You do not desire sacrifice, O Lord, but a contrite heart you will not despise. So, in that sense of sacrifice, God does not desire nor require the blood of goats and bulls. However, he does require sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. We owe God everything, our devotion, our love, because he's good. He is the highest good. It is, it is right and just that I should value the greater over the lesser. I have to, it, it's wrong of me to love the good more than the best. And if I love God with all my heart and soul, as is only right and just and good for me, then 
rightly I should be willing to sacrifice everything else to that aim. When Christ does this, when Christ gives his life in martyrdom for a noble cause, the salvation of the world, the honor of God, teaching the truth about God and man, and is put to death by wicked and unjust men, God rightly regards that act of sacrifice as noble and meritorious. And because of that, what does it mean to be meritorious? It means it deserves reward. Christ is honorable because of his sacrificial death. And God rewards that self-donation, that, that death by martyrdom, by pouring out on the church, the body of Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is not as though God were pleased per se with you know, the, 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 the crushing or the bleeding of his son. It is Christ's love for God and man, even loving them even unto death. It's the love of Christ that is meritorious and wins for us the gift of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. Next up is Steve. He is in Boulder, Colorado, listening to us on the Catholic Radio Network. Steve, you're on the air with Dr. David Anders. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Just a quick question. I'm wondering if Dr. Anders has heard of the work of um, David Hawkins. He, I think he passed away several years ago, but he was a um, pretty popular speaker, writer, psychologist, um, wrote a book called Power Versus Force and about a dozen others, um, was reading it and sounds pretty, quote-unquote, new-agey to me, but he does have what appear to be a lot of parallels with the Catholic faith and spirituality. Um, but it put some, some, it kind of put my radar up because of, it kind of puts Christ and Buddha and Krishna kind of on the same level as good, you know, good sages, spiritual teachers. So that, that kind of tipped me off there. But then I looked at the back cover and there's a quote in a um, endorsement by Mother Teresa that said it's the great source of peace. And so I was just wondering, you know, what, what to make of that, if, if you're familiar at all with, with his work in that book. Okay, thanks. So I, uh, uh, while you're talking to me, I'm trying to look up uh, this fellow and read something about his book, and I haven't been able to get enough information to speak to it with any depth. But I will, I will make this judgment. When, when, when somebody equates the teaching or the person of Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, and other spiritual founders, I know that they are a crazy hippie ideologue, all right, who doesn't take history seriously. I mean, that's just a fact. That's just a fact. Because you don't have to be a believer to come to this judgment. You could be a rank atheist. Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, and Confucius don't teach the same doctrines at all. At all. They are radically different in their view of reality, the moral life, the good life, and someone that tries to assimilate them all you know, to some common vision and then make, put that out as their own vision. What they're really engaged in here is a kind of a rhetorical sleight of hand where they're trying to enlist <clears throat> figures who have stature with different communities in the service of their own private ideology. And anyone who's got half a brain, honestly, who's done any kind of historical reading in these traditions knows they don't teach the same thing. 
So I, I just have no time for that. Now, I'll, I'll go read what Muhammad has to say. I'll go read what Confucius has to say. I'll go read what the Hindus say or what the Buddhist tradition says. And I'll read my own Catholic tradition, and I will compare and contrast them. Because I'm trying to get at the truth of the history. And, you know, when you say I find commonalities with the Catholic faith, you're going to find commonalities with the Catholic faith anytime someone says anything true. Because... The Catholic faith describes reality, and we have a common nature. And so, you know, like, the Catholic faith says, don't hit yourself in the head with a hammer. You don't have to be Catholic to come to that judgment. Somebody else says it, too. That doesn't, you know, you know what I'm saying? It, you, not everything they say is going to be true just because they come to that one true judgment. What about Mother Teresa's endorsement? God bless Mother Teresa. Saint Mother Teresa, all right? Mother Teresa, do, do what she does. Do what she does. She did not like theologians. I understand why. She thought they talked too much and did too little. <laughs> right? And it was not Mother Teresa's way to get into theological argument. Ever. 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 She just didn't do that. What she did was, like, serve you lunch and, and, and peel you off the sidewalk and bring you in and help you while you were dying and love on you. God bless Mother Teresa. That's the way to live life. And her path was not the path of a theologian. It was not to get into theological arguments or debates. She just radically, absolutely refused to do that. I respect her decision. But I would not read off of her endorsement anything more than what she meant by it, which was just, uh, my charism is not about arguing with people. Here, have a sandwich. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Peter's in Prince George, British Columbia, listening to EWTN on Sirius XM channel. Well, I got the wrong Peter. I apologize. Peter's in White Plains, New York, listening also on Sirius XM 130, a first-time caller. Peter, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for taking my call, Dr. Anders. My question is two parts, but they're very short parts. When a priest consecrates the host, why does he break a piece off and drop it into the precious blood? And then secondly, I've noticed Eucharistic ministers, when they hand out the host, some parishioners take it and dip it into the cup and then consume it. So I'm hoping maybe you can help me with understanding this, and I'll hang up and listen to your response. Thank you. Sure. I appreciate it. So the, the, the practice of of taking a piece of the consecrated host and place it in the chalice is extremely ancient. It's a very, very ancient tradition in the church. Theologians have given different interpretations to it, but it's something that we receive by way of sacred tradition. Uh, as to its significance, you know, I'm to be honest with you, that's a little bit speculative, right? So I'm not going to go into that, but I'll tell you it's an extremely ancient tradition. Um, uh, intinction is a common way of receiving Holy Communion, particularly in the Eastern rites of the Church. I am certainly not aware of anything in the rubrics of the Latin rite that would permit a layperson to perform their own intinction. Well, I'm not aware of anything that would per, that per, permit that. Yeah. Exactly. So that, that we should not do. Um, but there are rites of the Church where the priest will grant will give you Holy Communion by intinction. In the Eastern Rites. In the Eastern Rites of the Church. And it is permissible for the celebrant to engage in intinction. There you go. But the lay faithful should, should not. Should not be doing it. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Charles, let's go to line four. I want to take uh, Peter in Prince George, British Columbia, since I I faked him out earlier. So if we can get Peter on. Peter, you are on with Dr. David Andrews. Thank you very much. Love your show. I learned a great deal, mainly how much I don't know. Fast question. Um, I've had somebody that we know who is a Mormon has passed away, and we've been invited to the memorial service or funeral or whatever it is at the church, not the graveside service. Uh, our, and this is something I've always struggled with. I mean, I would like to go out of respect because I've known the person for a long time, but at the same time, am I um, basically uh, affirming that, that, their, that their beliefs are okay? Okay, thanks. Appreciate the question. Uh, simply to attend the religious service of another religion is not necessarily to signal your agreement with what it means or what their beliefs are. And you can attend the rites of other traditions out of respect for a deceased person or for some other pivotal event in human life. Now, not knowing the details of a Mormon funeral, if, if there is some point at the ceremony where you are called upon explicitly to affirm you know, by right or gesture, some Mormon doctrine, then obviously you would refrain. Uh, but of course, I don't know, I've never been to a Mormon funeral, so I don't know what their rights are. But just in principle, it's not immoral for you to go out of respect. And they understand that you're not Mormon. And uh, very quickly, we'll head to Jim in Terre Haute, Indiana, listening on Covenant Radio, first-time caller. About a minute left, Jim, what's your question? My question is about the right of communion for a divorced Catholic. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So to be civilly divorced is not an absolute barrier to receiving Holy Communion in the Catholic Church. However, if you are civilly divorced and civilly remarried in an invalid marriage and you are uh, in normal conjugal relations with, uh, you know, this other person then that would constitute objectively the state of adultery. Adultery is an impediment to receiving communion in the Catholic Church. So the way around that problem is, number one, get in a valid marriage, or in some way or another, stop committing adultery, go to confession, be absolved of the sin of adultery, and then you can go to communion. However, if you're just divorced, not remarried, um, then then. You know, confession and absolution for whatever past sins you may have committed relative to that marriage puts you in the state of grace. You can go to communion. God bless you, David Anders. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Jack. Let's do it again tomorrow. Absolutely. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Charles Beery, our call screener, Ryan uh, Ryan Perry. How am I doing? Ryan Penny. And your social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price here on EWTN's call to communion back at it tomorrow until then god bless hey y'all this is father mitch pack open line wednesday is next on ewtn radio 
Now, not only can you watch EWTN anywhere, but anytime with EWTN On Demand. Get on-demand access to more than 12,000 EWTN programs, including live shows and specials, all in one place, all free. Just go to EWTN.com forward slash On Demand. There's nothing to fill out, no memberships required, and no fees to pay. All you need is an Internet connection, and you're good to go. EWTN On Demand. Fast, easy, and free. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Hi, I'm Christina, and I'd like to invite you to the traditional Latin Mass at St. Pius X. The traditional Latin Mass is a beautiful combination of contemplative prayer and children learning how to participate. We have missiles for you to borrow that contain the prayers of the Mass in Latin and English or Spanish. After Mass, join us under the shade of the trees to socialize and let the children play. I hope to see you this Sunday at 1.30 at St. Pius X Traditional Latin Mass off Harry Wurzbach near 410. Thank you. May God bless you. KJMA 89.7 FM would like to thank Dr. Stephen Planche and the Atascosa Vision Source in Pleasanton, Texas for their support in keeping our airwaves Catholic. Their vision is to provide an eye care experience that is like no other. Service to you is their priority. Atascosa Vision Source is located at 1514 West Oak Lawn in Pleasanton and can be reached at 830-569-8771 or visionsource-atascosa.com. We are so thankful to our JRN family for all they do to keep all the Guadalupe Radio Network stations on the air. Hi, this is Len Oswald, president of the GRN, and I want to introduce you to two more GRN family members, Joe and Robert. Joe McLean is director of mission development for the Guadalupe Radio Network. Joe joined the GRN on March 25th, 2013. He and his wife Michelle live in Houston, Texas, and have four sons and two daughters. Joe loves bow hunting and giving praise to Jesus Christ. Robert Dominguez joined the GRN on July 16, 2013 as an operations assistant for our West Texas operations consisting of 13 stations. He and his wife Naomi have one son, two daughters, and ten grandchildren. Robert loves camping and hunting. This has been your GRN Family Minute. We are your Catholic radio. Radio for your soul. And I want to thank you for being part of the GRN family. I'm Father Ed Bresnahan from St. Andrews in Clifton, and this is Two Minutes to Virtue. In today's gospel, our Lord gives us three parables of three people who have lost something. We have the shepherd who's lost a sheep, we have the lady who has lost a coin, and then we have the father who has lost not just really one son, but two sons. And each of these parables points to the idea that there's something our Lord is doing to complete what was lost. And so I think in each story, we have a beautiful example. So in the first one, the Lord is going after us. He's relentlessly pursuing us, that he never leaves us. And so he searches for us, even when we have abandoned him and when we are burdened by sin and we've fallen away, our Lord relentlessly pursues us. In the second one, you have the idea of of a lost coin. You have this idea that this this woman has, has 10 coins in which represents her dowry. And so losing one, represents an incompleteness in her own life. So of course she's going to scour 
top to bottom, looking for something of great value. We do this in our own homes, and the Lord does it with us. The Lord would clean and sweep a house 50 times over if it meant finding us, hidden in a crack, under a table, who knows where we could be. The Lord looks for us, and the Lord finds us. And then the image of the Son. The Father sees him coming from a long way off. He is watching, he is waiting. Our Lord is vigilant in looking for us. So today is a great reminder to us that our Lord is never far away from us. That even when things seem completely lost, when things seem so far away, our God will look for us and our God finds us. All we have to do is turn our hearts towards him. So in a particular way, our challenge today is to turn our hearts a little bit more deeply towards him, to experience the conviction in our heart, to desire a conversion, to reject sin, and to embrace the life of the gospel. Two Minutes to Virtue is a production of the Catholic Diocese of Arlington, Virginia. For more information, visit their website at arlingtondiocese.org. Thanks for listening to KJMA 89.7 Floresville, San Antonio. On the Guadalupe Radio Network in South Texas. Catholic Radio for your soul. Catholic Radio for your soul. Also streaming on grnonline.com and on your smartphone.